Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 489 with my guest, Dr. Esther Park. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is metalpod.com. Also, the social media handles that you can follow me at. Uh, We've got some good surveys for today, and I just want to read a couple of them before we get to the um, the interview with, with Dr. Park. Um, but before that, I, I, I got off the, the f- phone with a friend, uh, about an hour ago. And it was one of those mornings where I woke up and you ever have those mornings where the doom wakes up before you do and is standing there with a cup of coffee, welcoming you to your personal dread of responsibility and being an adult. And just as I woke up, a friend of mine called, and he was experiencing kind of a a different version of the same thing, dread and responsibility uh, at that place in a relationship where do you break up, do you keep trying to work on it, you know, some, some professional anxiety and envy of peers. And as we were talking about it, uh, you know, I, I was letting him know that I very much related to the feelings that he had. You know, while the relationship I'm in uh, is is great and I'm not experiencing that, I've experienced that before. And if I've learned anything in all the struggles that I've gone through, it's to be patient with the process. You know, there's a part of our brain that wants anything that is unsettled to be settled right now 
and if we can't settle it, we think that we're failing. And that's a really, really backdoor way of being hard on ourselves. Problems have a way of making their own schedule. And probably one of the biggest gifts of sobriety that that I have experienced, and a lot of people I know have experienced this, is being more comfortable with unresolved problems. Because that part of our brain that's mean tells us that if if we don't see it resolving, that, that we're failing and that there's something wrong with us. And the belief that if we have problems, somehow we're not doing life right. And it's taken me years to see that very often the quote-unquote problems that I had were the very things that helped me grow into the person that I wanted to be. It's it's a path that none of us want, but the hindsight of looking back and saying, you know, if I hadn't gone through that difficult thing, I don't think I would be where I'm at right now, and I don't think I would appreciate what I have right now. So much of life to me has been the process of elimination, of experiencing things I didn't want to experience so that I could avoid them in the future by living my life differently. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Bobblies. And she writes, sitting in a bus station, waiting in line, and two older women who were clearly complete strangers just started chatting to each other. As we got on the bus, they sat together and proceeded to to chat to one another for the whole hour that I was on the bus with them. Obviously, this was filled out before the pandemic. Uh, The way that these women just seemed to click with one another was just so sweet and reminded me that in a really busy world where you can feel so alone, you never know where you will find human connection. Ah, I love that. I love that. Uh, One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, there's, there's so many great things about it that I'm not going to list them here. I list them every week. Uh, but let me just say that it is my favorite therapeutic relationship. I've, I've had a lot of therapists in the 30 plus years that I've been going to therapy on and off. And, um, I really like the one that I, I have with my therapist, Donna. So if you want to know, uh, more, Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just uh, fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sambi. And about her um, drug addiction, she writes, Marijuana is not addictive. I just need it every night, can't sleep without it, spend most of my money on it, and miss job opportunities because of it. And about her codependency, I want to be able to develop secure attachment, but first I need everyone else around me to already have that. (laughs) This is so great. Oh, thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Robin Hood of Doors. No idea what that means. Uh, I love seeing someone you have a crush on driving in a car that is close to your car. Oh, that is such a great one. 
That is such a great one. Have you ever had a crush on someone and you envy their pet <laughs> because their pet is able to be around them all the time? Uh I love making a cup of tea in the morning, holding the cup as it warms my hands and watching the steam dissipate from the cup into the air. Those are great. Thank you. And then uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as a good thing I gave up long ago. And they write, A few years ago, I met with my mother and wanted to discuss something that had been bothering me. She had been hinting hard for years that I was going to be the one to take care of her in her old age, and I didn't want to do it. We'd had decades of history of her gaslighting, constant put-downs, and an utter failure to respect my emotions. So we sat down in a lovely campground, and I just brought it up directly rather than continue in the hint-slash-pressure mode. I said, Mom, you've been hinting that I should take care of you when you're no longer able to, and I don't think that's a good idea. She asked why. I said, we have a difficult relationship. She shot back, no, we don't. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Esther Park, uh, who's a psychiatrist, and your subspecialty is uh, child and adolescent psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff to talk about. We put some questions out to people on Twitter. Um, another thing that we want to get to, too, is the difference between role and identity. Um, let's let's do the questions that okay. uh, I put some of the, the, the question out on Twitter that I was going to be interviewing a, a psychologist. Uh, you want to uh, read any of the ones that you'd like to delve into? Um, I'll go in order. Sure. Okay. Uh, the this first one here. I'm just going to move it? the mic closer. Oh, okay, to sure. You. Should I read it or? Yeah, okay. yeah. Go ahead and read it. Are there any recent studies related to fibromyalgia depression correlation, and what are the criteria and or opinion on anti- antidepressants for pain relief? Um, I suffer from both PTSD and anxiety. Um, yeah, this is really tough because not only having an anxiety disorder to have a pain syndrome mm-hmm. on top of that really complicates both. I would say that uh, there's a high level of risk for depression and anxiety with chronic pain, and then those with depression and anxiety can feel pain in in a more exaggerated manner. Mm. Yeah, and so the um, my opinion, if if it's asking my opinion. Antidepressant is always worth trying, not as a direct pain reliever, but the sensation of the sadness and the hopelessness that can come with 
chronic, like unrelenting pain, mm-hmm. antidepressants are very, very important. And so many times we actually even use tricyclic antidepressants. Which um, are the real old school ones. Yeah, like Elavel or nortriptyline, mm-hmm. because they have a little bit of even anti-pain um, element mm-hmm. and effect. So sometimes we try that first. Uh, a lot of times we even use gabapentin. and That's that, a beta blocker? No, it's actually a... Um, it has its own category of just gabapentin, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's it normally used for? Because I've heard it before. Yes. I can't remember. Well, what. the the uh, that's the generic name, and the trade name is Neurontin. Oh yeah, I yeah, used yeah. Neurontin. Yeah. So originally it was created for anti seizure, and it was so interesting that when they were using that, it wasn't as strong as other anti epileptic medications. But during the studies back then, a lot of the patients had anxiety and when they were using gabapentin for the studies they they found out that their anxiety was much better and so they started to realize oh maybe we can use this as an off label for anxiety right kind of how viagra was uh, originally a blood pressure right, right. medicine and and so not only the anxiety treatment mm-hmm. but they saw how it worked for neuropathic pain mm-hmm. so they use it for neuropathy and other kind of pains. That's numbness and tingling. Right. right. Those kind of pains. Or even just even back pain or headaches. And so um, I use it a lot just because it it's um, excreted in the kidneys and it doesn't interact very much with other meds. Mm -hmm. It's not addictive. um, And it works on the GABA receptor. So for fibromyalgia, right, there are ways to kind of use these meds two for one kind of thing, two Mm -hmm. birds and one stone with one stone. Anxiety and pain. Cymbalta has been used that way for fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. anti-depression, anti-anxiety, and anti-pain. Yeah. Um, although I always have to give a lot of warnings about starting Cymbalta. Yes. Uh, why is that? Because I've, I have used Cymbalta in the past. Mm. Pretty much any drug you're going to name today, okay. <laughs> uh, I'll let you know if I haven't uh, okay, used well, it. Well, Cymbalta, I mean, it, when it works... It's, it's an SSRI. No, it's correct. an SNRI. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And so when, when it works, it just works really well. Um, and just like Effexor and, and however... Use that. When, when you come off of it, some people, and you can never guess who's going to be who, cannot tolerate it. Cannot the brain zaps? The brain zaps. Yeah, and, it's and, not fun. Right. And I had one client... Poor soul. I literally helped her try to get off of it one bead at a time. Is that like one milligram at no, a time? No. Like she had to split the beads within the capsule. Oh my God. <laughs> in order to tolerate coming off of that. Wow. Yes, it was horrible. Wow. Right. The uh, analgesic effect that I have experienced from from my meds, I never realized how powerful it was until I had a broken ankle Mm. and I was in the ER Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure. It only really hurt when I stood up on it and I was just sitting there and it was really crowded or I should say slow ER. And so I sat there for five hours and when the doctor did finally see me and brought in the x-ray, he said, you must be in excruciating pain. And I said... No, I'm 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 fine. I said it, it it's not broken, is it? He said, "Oh yeah. It's oh, wow. it's totally broken." He said, "Do you take antidepressants?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "I bet they have a strong analgesic mm. effect." And therefore to answer this question further, I would use it if if they were even just 
in my office and asking me mm-hmm. and and open and willing to use it. Right. A lot of times I struggle in convincing people just try antidepressants because of all of the fear of the side effects, especially mm-hmm. the suicidality and things like that. Well, now would be a good time then to uh, talk about doing talk therapy with a psychologist or therapist or social worker at the same time Mm -hmm. as psychiatry. And one of the other questions we have is why is it, uh, go ahead, go ahead and read the uh, the exact question. Yes. It's so related. Why isn't it required or recommended that patients should see a psychologist and a psychiatrist at the same time? It seems like it works so much better when they work hand in hand. Um, Whoever submitted this question, I a hundred percent agree. Um, because psychiatry, psychiatrists like myself, we're dealing with like the neurochemistry and helping with that. But our brain is not just just a, a brain matter of neurotransmitters with all these neural connections. It's memories. There, and, there's a mind inside, right? Yeah. And there's a psychology inside. And it's, uh, that's the intangible part. Okay. And psychotherapy or counseling is absolutely necessary to change perceptions and views and and meaning because when there are some stuck cognitive distortions, sometimes even that's more powerful than the meds. And so when it is hand in hand, I do really see progression toward recovery, um, either faster or more steady. Mm-hmm. And many times I, I bring out everything I can use and they didn't even get better until finally they started psychotherapy. What's the next one? So down on the next one is when or why is it determined that medication would work better than talk therapy? Um, That's such a great question. Isn't it? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say the work better part. You know what I would think is, um, especially since I treat children, unless I know that they are in a very severe state, um, if they have a possibility of recovery with just talk therapy or like the parenting therapy, mm-hmm. many times I would recommend, can you please do that first? Yeah. So that if that doesn't help more than 50% and have a progression toward that, then I will be more vigilant to figure out if medications are indicated. Right. And so I, I hope that my clients and parents don't think Right when I added the meds and things started changing, many times they attribute, oh, because meds are better. And I would say it's not because of that. It's because there had, there was a neurotransmitter issue. For example, ADHD is very, very, um, a good example. Mm-hmm. It's very neurological. It's very mechanical. And that's how I try to describe it to the kids. But the therapy part is absolutely so helpful. There are a lot of parents who go to therapy first because they're afraid of meds, and then they try the meds, and that stimulant med, for example, it worked beautifully, and then they stop going to therapy. And if they stop going to therapy, they won't continue learning executive functioning training skills and and how to manage time and how to be responsible. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a benefit to both. But if there is a chemical, biological imbalance or... Um, deficit, then we should help it, just like with any other medical disease. I know there are a lot of parents who are who have kids that are hyperactive or have ADHD or ADD, and it's recommended by somebody 
that they put their kid on Ritalin or, or something else. And clearly as a parent, they feel confused, um, mm-hmm. feel like it's a huge decision. They don't want to fuck their kid up, mm-hmm. but they also want to give their, their kid the best treatment possible. Yes. What would you advise, uh, to that uh, kid? Obviously start talk therapy first. Would you say, see if that works or is ADHD something that no amount of talk therapy is going to, uh, completely manage yeah you know for so and then and then throw in the age part the fact that it's a developing brain exactly etc exactly for adhd let's let's say that this particular case we're we're saying talking about they bona they have a bona fide adhd let's say and and there's a lot of confusion um you know children are developing where their frontal cortex continues to develop all the way to, to age 25 and for someone who struggles with true ADHD, it's even harder, you know, for their frontal cortex. So um, when they're struggling with that, and if it's between moderate to severe ADHD, because there's all range of severity, mild to moderate, moderate to severe, it, they, it will start to affect many areas of their life, not just academically, but even socially, because they just can't relationships. Exactly. Difficulty listening. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, if they ever come to me first, um, first, I actually really empathize like where they've been through and to let them know, I don't automatically label you have ADHD just because your first complaint to me was I can't focus and I'm hyper because there are so many other things that can be causing that. Could be emotional distress. It could be chaos in the home. Right. It could be anxiety that can make someone look they have like impaired focus or hyperactivity. So um, we have to really take time in ruling out everything, actually, especially the emotional component and the social environment component. There are some surveys that people fill out on paper, parent survey and Mm -hmm. child survey, but that's still subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, how much are you hyper? Oh, very, you know, like that, things like that. But the test of variable attention is a computerized test. And the client sits in front of the screen and are given instructions to click when they see the wiggly line, for example. Mm-hmm. Or so it's a quantitative. It's very quantitative and it's right. very specific and, um, and sensitive. Right. And so the astute so you said there's a squiggly line or something? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's squiggly or it's just like a, a shadow of a, mm-hmm. of a point. Mm-hmm. And you have to really pay attention, actually. Gotcha. And it's only four segments of 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But for someone with severe inattentive type ADHD, they struggle so much just to keep their eyes on the screen. And so there's a way to um, objectively, quantitatively, analyze the results. So the astute uh, tester will know how to read those results and explain um, to to the patient. So let's say that that even shows that it is most likely very uh, highly likely that they have ADHD. Um, And we ruled out for social issues and emotional issues, and they have these symptoms at least since age 12, like all the DSM criteria, right? right? right. Um, then I share with them, you know, this is not like a life or death 
kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to push prescriptions, but I'm here to explain that it may be able to change your quality of life. So if your child really has ADHD and it takes four hours to do one homework assignment, it might take only 40 minutes. Right. And so what kind of... Or maybe the kid should just drop out of school and start busking. (laughs) That would be... That would be my choice. We need. We just need more street music. (laughs) So so sometimes I tell them... The other thing is the side effects is what a lot of parents struggle with, right? They are very fearful that they sign the consent, it's their fault for causing their child to experience a side effect. And I share with them, you know what, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie, potential side effects are always there, but they do not always happen. That's why they're called potential. So I'll watch out, that with, I'll watch out for that with you. And I, I promise I will never make you continue taking something that's intolerable. And I will do my best to keep looking for something that works without side effects. And if I'm wrong, let's say I'm wrong with the diagnosis, I tried 10 different meds, then I really should go back to the drawing board and figure out what's causing that hyperactivity. I love when I meet a doctor who has curiosity. I've come across so many doctors, you know, MDs and also psychiatrists, that just really, that you just didn't get a sense that that they were seekers, that Mm. they were curious. And it's so disappointing when you're a patient and you encounter a doctor that that just doesn't really ask you many questions and just they just want the easiest answer at hand so they can see the next patient. I it understand. just pisses me off. Let's go to the next question. Yes. Um, I'm going to answer this one real quickly. Psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Will we see this happen in the U.S. next year? Um, yeah, I heard that it might even happen this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really following the updated um, research of what's going on today. I guess I'm somewhat conservative. I need to see it's FDA approved, and then I'll consider it. <laughs> uh, I have tried ketamine. Uh, mm. We were talking about that before yes. before we started taping. And uh, because I have a treatment-resistant depression, and my psychiatrist said, you know, uh, give it a shot. I I don't know if it will work for you because it, it was through a, a doctor that had been a guest on on the podcast and um it did not ultimately help me but kind of going back to what you were saying before uh, I'm a believer in trying everything that you can yeah yeah so i'm not a, I, if it's fda approved and someone proved it that right it would be more beneficial than harm right then i i'm all all for that even even those who ask me about um, vitamins and herbs and they, they, or acupuncture and they ask me about that, I would preface it that uh, I don't know the research and I don't see any research about that. But as long as you don't get hurt by it, mm-hmm. you know you're more than welcome to try it. So, all right, what's our next one? Oh, so. When a psychiatrist puts a person on meds, there never seems to be a time frame or plan to get off of them. That's why I have been on psych meds for 25 years. Original diagnosis, postpartum depression. Now I can't get off of them without a terrible withdrawal. Wow, what a great question. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. First of all, I'm very sorry that it's been so hard to come off of the meds. So typically I do share with clients when they come in when what the time frame minimum time frame should be for example 
first episode depression, we always say at least six to nine months. And, and any sooner than that would kind of risk that it wasn't a complete treatment. Mm-hmm. And even if they're feeling okay, sometimes the, the depression lifts even at the first or second month. Mm-hmm. And they're so tempted just to come off of it. And we say, oh, we'll just keep it there, do a maintenance. And we consider their maintenance already until like the ninth, up to ninth or 12th month. And then if they tell me, um, I feel good, you know, please take me off. I always would review the pros and cons or risks and benefits. Um, and I tell them, well, um, have you feel, have you felt any life circumstances that would have brought you down, but it didn't bring you down? And, um, how diligent are you in therapy? Do you have a backup therapist just in case you start feeling things when I do start tapering off? I, I review all of that mm-hmm. before they decide. And sometimes they make the decision. Oh, no, let me just stay on it for a little longer. Yeah. But when it comes to subsequent episodes, for example, if you have one episode and there is a inter-episode in, um, remission time, what are the chances of getting the second episode? It's between like 50 and 60%. To me, it is kind of high, but it's not like 100%, right? So let's say they get the second episode. Then we would still treat up to one year and then have the talk again that you got a second episode. This is your end of your second episode. You did great. You're in remission now. The The risk of a third episode, it goes up to, to like 70% or 80%. Meaning an episode occurring while they're off the meds. Correct. Yeah. Correct. After they reach intermission. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, intermission. Uh, remission. Right. So so they say, oh, I want, I still want to try Okay, so let's say they taper off the medication and they do well. There's an inner um, episode remission going on. Then if they got their third episode, while treating that, we always tell them, this is your third episode. And um, the chance for a fourth, if you reached remission and you come off the treatment, the chance for a fourth is now in the 90 percentile. What when you say reach remission? What does that mean? You're completely off your meds and you're symptom free. Gotcha. And you remain symptom free. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry about that. So, okay. um, so we have those discussions and we share with them. For example, I I I have to empathize what it what it means to them, and I ask them, what does it mean to you that you're quote unquote still stuck on the meds, right? And and what that means to them in terms of the label, you know, always needing an anti depression medication. Oh, then I am not a whole person. I'm broken, right? Like those kind of cheating. I'm using a crutch. Right, right. And I try to help, you know, we rephrase and reframe that thinking. And I, for example, most recent one I heard was, I don't want to be dependent. Okay. Um, Do you depend on water? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, of course. You need it every day. <laughs> I need it every day. I'm highly dependent on water. Um, and so I help them re- just review and re- have a different perception of what the word dependency means. And then I describe dependency on street drugs, like the psychological mm-hmm. and physiological dependency and the connotations that that word has for that mm-hmm. is different from your serotonergic system needs it. Right. I, I th- 
sometimes wonder if there isn't a lasting uh, legacy of the image of the person in the 60s being prescribed Valium to cope, which to me would be an example of somebody who is dependent, you know, where, where there is kind of an emotional thing there as well as, you know, needing to be sedated. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I view the SSRIs and, and other types of meds as similar to insulin for, for diabetes as it's, it's, this isn't to, you know, make you euphoric and narcotic. This is to just get you up to the starting line with everybody else. Right. I mean, the benzodiazepine talk is like a whole nother different talk, but I use that exact same analogy, the insulin and the diabetes. The pancreas um, cannot produce insulin anymore, and you can't live without it. And so the insulin medications, I mean, they're lifesavers, right? right? For the serotonergic system, I explained to them that these SSRIs, are they don't give you serotonin. It doesn't make you high right. because you have more serotonin or adrenaline. It actually manipulates, like all, a lot of other meds, the receptor sites. So it helps your existing serotonin, as few as it's, there are left, to work harder in double time. And without the help of the receptor sites, then it's depleted. Like it's, it's just run out. It, you know, they're on vacation or they're saying, I'm clocking out at five o'clock. So it is required to help keep it going. And they have the energy to keep going. And I'm just using these layman terms, but. So it's not really a, an introduction of something that wasn't already existing in your, in your body. Right. Exactly. And I think that's the the active ingredient. Right. 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 And I think the um, stimulant medications of ADHD, People are fearful because the label of the class of medicine stimulants. So they're considered a controlled substance, right? But it's interesting. Those who do not have ADHD, it gives them the sensation of the high. Mm -hmm. Um, But those who have ADHD, it helps with their dopaminergic system. And so there's all this um, struggle because of the words, right? And I have to help redefine them and help them understand what it really means. Uh, you touched on benzos uh, mm-hmm. briefly. You mentioned it. Uh, this would be a good time to, to talk about okay. it, the, the, the myths about it, how it's different than an SSRI or um, Valium or something like that. Right. Valium is a long-acting benzo. Um, these days that, that are used very, very um, frequently are the Xanaxes, like Xanax, Xanax XR, the Ativan, Lorizepam, and Clonopin. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, you know, I, I have to admit, there are times where I'm like, I have to use them. Where others just don't do the trick because those receptors is not w- what needed help. Mm-hmm. I do save them for last because I can't predict, um, I'm a psychiatrist, not a psychic, like who would get high from them and then start to love them right. where they will never want me to come off of it. So would it be fair to say it's more of a drug reserved for uh crisis? Yes. Okay. I think the best way to use it is 
um, the rescue med mm-hmm. kind of category. So maybe somebody lost a loved one or... Sure, you know, temporarily, some, yes, uh, yes. Or just for flights. They right. don't they don't have any anxiety except they have a phobia for height and, and mm-hmm. flying. Um, or... And, they, and they're not they're not getting high off of it, but they need it for an important meeting, mm-hmm. or to the dentist, or you know those kind of specific moments. Sometimes I do use it even temporarily while the SSRIs are trying to kick in, gotcha. because we don't know which dose will be effective for someone, for example, because it takes three to six weeks to even start seeing that effect. And it's frustrating for someone. It's the it's the worst when changing meds and then knowing mm-hmm. you've got eight weeks to find out if this might not even it's, work. I, I, I hate explaining it, yes. actually. So during that process, a lot of times I try to treat the immediate needed symptoms that are so um, tormenting, for example, insomnia or panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, please, this is for temporary relief while we see the SSRIs kick in. And I'll know if that's the case or not. And therefore, I take a stab at it and I give them a chance and I share with mm-hmm. them, please only take it as prescribed. Um, do not go beyond that. And I've had struggles where I had no choice but to resort to them. And then they, like, they love it because <laughs> right. it, it gives them so much relief. I mean, it's magical right. when it does. So suddenly they'll only go go to that instead of like their cognitive behavioral therapy skills or right. or other remedies. And then here I'm stuck because they're like, I ran out three days early. Please give me some more. <laughs> That's got to be tough for you because you don't want them in pain, but there's it also sounds like there's an addiction red flag there. Yes, and, and not to their intent, right? Like they, right. they didn't start taking him with this intention of like he 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 I'm gonna like totally. I think ninety percent of the of addicts are that's that's the the truth is yeah. oh yeah. I feel better oh now I need a little more right. and before you know it you're dependent right and and the unfortunate thing is the way it works the first time uh, runs out of power over time mm-hmm. so that's why this behavior of like I need more I need more not that they need more the 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 previous dose doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. So they de- they need more for the same effect. That's called tolerance. And so And does I, it keep going up? It it, it could. It really, right. really could. So But not with everybody. Not with everybody. Okay. Yeah. And so and I don't know the science about that, but I do warn that that could happen and I share with them if I see that's about to happen, I have to tell you and to warn you. Otherwise, I'm going to be a bad doctor right. <laughs> to keep giving you more and more. And then you're really stuck. And then there's no way to come off of that. So yeah, uh, withdrawal from benzos can, can kill people. It actually could yeah. because of the seizures. Right. Yeah. What's our next question? The next one is the next page. I think we did that one already. So this one, given that most psychiatric studies are conducted by entities with an interest in the outcome, how do they discern which info to use when making decisions? For example, there are no studies on weaning off meds because that wouldn't be good for pharma. <laughs> oh gosh, this is another soapbox I can go into regarding pharmaceuticals and go on it. The cost of meds and the capitalism. Um, one insurance coverage can pay for a billify 
it's only like 10 bucks copay. And then for another client, it would be 100 bucks and they can't be on it. It is just a battle. It really is. Um, so yeah, this person is right. The, the questioner is right. There are no studies on weaning off meds. Because um, nobody, nobody makes money from somebody <laughs> weaning off meds. And also I think because the purpose of the study you know, is to get the FDA approved in the first place. Right. And, and then they get that and then they're done. Right. After that, there will be, that's true, there will be no monetary gain at all um, for studying the other way around. Let's talk about uh, the differences between uh, role mm. and identity. That's yes. something that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, sure. Uh, this topic is so deep, right? It's such a deep concept, you know, the sense of self, the, you know, who am I? Um, how do I describe myself? You know, that, mm -hmm. and it's not an everyday language. You know, when somebody asks me, who are you? You know, I'm not going to think about what's my deep understanding of my understanding right. of my identity. <laughs> yes. I will answer very superficially. Who am I? Oh, I'm Esther. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm Korean American, you know, and, um, but it is a very important and crucial concept. And the theorist Erickson says that the adolescent uh, the development stage of adolescence is when the ident identity formation um, occurs and needs to just really be solid. Uh, and there's so many influences to it, uh, so much so because we live in a social society, a social where we're surrounded by people and highly influenced, you know, by one another. And so, um, throughout the child's lifetime and then throughout adult lifetime. If someone doesn't understand that there is a difference, like what identity is not, and they equate roles to that identity, there's a lot of confusion. So, so equating what you do with who you are. Yes. For yes. instance, you know, I'm a, I'm an engineer, or I'm a mother of three, or I'm disabled, right. or you had a big a big list yes. of. Uh, roles. Right. For example, they say that it's shaped by these components, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the cultural, professional, like you mentioned, ethnic, national, religious, political, gender, disability, um, or talents, mm -hmm. or just the positions I have, you know. And and if I want to use myself as an example, um, the Asian community, right? And I grew up, even though I'm U.S. born, um, I grew up with my parents who are immigrants from Korea, and they grew up purely collectivistically. So there's a cultural um, influence on the identity. What do you mean when you say uh, purely? Collectivistic. Right. Yes. So the difference between collectivistic and individualistic is that in collectivistic ideology, you are part of a whole. And the group identity shadows the self. Whereas individualistic... Because they were immigrants or because that's how it was in Korea? That is how it is in, in just all of Asia. <laughs> and, and a lot of the Latino countries as well, too. Mm. Yes. And so your identity, you're given a role you know, within that group, which is family, for example. Mm. And you are 
behaving or making choices that are benefiting the whole. And of course, by the whole, do you mean the family? The family. Okay. I see. Okay. Right. So we'll call the group as the family group. And so my opinions are important, but the benefit to the group will supersede an opinion. So, so, so you can also say mm -hmm. if you have a dad who was a dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and many it, people's dads it, are, <laughs> yeah. In it, well, I, I suppose mothers as well. But um, I'm I'm being partially glib here. But when when I think of the um, family who's where the parents were immigrants, I I think of tremendous pressure on the kids because the parents worry about what their family looks like to the other members exactly. of that community. So that's a really good example that 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 ties into this, right? Your status. Be- your behavior, yes, your accomplishments, for example, academic accomplishments will reflect what our group looks like. For example, what our family I looks see. like. You're an example every day of our people, so, our race. Right. right. So your identity has to equate to a good student, mm-hmm. right? And so the child can grow up believing that if I don't get that straight A report card, then I'm reducing the value of this family. And if I reduce the value of this family, then my value is low, right? And and I'm just saying the subconscious, you know, right. on the surface right now, right. but... Um, I remember growing up and, um, I mean, my parents actually, they're really cool. They, they weren't as harsh as some others, but I remember bringing home a B plus, right? And to me, I thought I did my best. Maybe I was second grade, third grade. And so I showed it to my mom, super busy, always carried two jobs back then. I said, here's my report card. And she's like, what's this B about? <laughs> Ignored all the other A's. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. So there is like this almost universal emphasis on education because it's very important. And also immigrant parents came to America, for example, solely, many times solely for the education of their children. And they're doing it out of love, right, for the security of their future. And so they will harshly emphasize get the grades, get the grades, go to the best schools, mm-hmm. right? Out of love, right? obviously. Isn't there also, I'm sure it's not conscious, maybe it is conscious, self-preservation on the part of the parent because that kid in Asian culture is going to be taking care of them when when they age. And that is collectivism. Yes, right. that is. And, and the shame that comes from, it's not the shame of, oh, my child didn't get good grades. It's the shame of I'm not a good parent. And so it's like just this back and forth thing. So I grew up that way. A lot way. of control mm-hmm. going on. Yes. Yes. So I used to struggle with my identity of being the good student and not not being the best student. And then here I am competing with other friends who are non-Asian. And then that label of Asians get the best grades, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't. So I struggle with my identity during high school because of that. So um, that's like a, a cultural background influence. But that does not define me. Whether I got great, right. the best grades 
was not the definition of my true identity. Right. Another one is um, that that mm-hmm. those were just your achievements, mm-hmm. the grade of your achievements. Um, go ahead, I cut you off. Yes, yes. The professional, a little bit related, right? So, being a doctor doesn't define me. I mean, what if I didn't even make it to med school in the first place? Mm-hmm. Or what if I lose my license now? So if I'm not a doctor anymore, do I lose myself? Like, right. do I disappear? So those are some, those are the reasons why we can't equate role or job um, or any other outer shell like label mm-hmm. as the me, even my name, right? This one I kind of grappled with a little bit. Even the word Esther Park or the phrase Esther Park are just words to label who I am when somebody wants to get my attention. Mm-hmm. But I'm not those words, and those words are not me, actually. So I think that's a, a very interesting philosophical... And never expected a psychiatrist to get this <laughs> existential. It's it's refreshing. <laughs> yeah, Normally we just talk about meds and mm-hmm. the FDA and, yeah. you know... Uh, stuff like that it's it's uh it's nice to talk about this stuff because it's so um ethereal in a lot of ways it's so um conceptual but it's so important to who we are to understand the difference that we you said before we started recording that we have innate value just because we are. Yes. Just because we exist. We just don't have to do anything to have value. Yes. I I think in, in, in my practice and, and the um the name Oak actually was inspired by the biology of the DNA that's already in the acorn has the capacity to become an oak tree. And and then when it's growing a lot of times people won't look at that as the mighty oak until they visualize it later. But when that acorn is an acorn, it needs to know I'm, I'm actually an oak, but I'm not there yet. And so the inspiration of that is, is for those of us who have this privilege, who happens to be a psychiatrist or happens to be a psychologist, and that's not our identity. We just happen to have those skills. Um, we desire to help others to see the acorn in themselves and to be able to reach that potential and not be stuck by negative experiences of the past or even be stuck by a biological depression or bipolar or schizophrenia. Because if they label themselves, I'm a schizophrenic, then the cognitive distortion makes them limited. That's, that's it then, right? And so we have to bust out of these labels and not be defined by them or or think our happiness and joy is contingent upon that. A lot of people right now are struggling and I really just, my heart aches for those who struggle with gender identity, for example. They think that identity is their gender, but their gender is just a gender. Like, you know, their XY is XX, you know, and then how they live, wearing dresses or not, That that's like a preference and that's a lifestyle, but when they start equating it and labeling it to the to the heavy level of that's my identity, mm-hmm. they will be unhappy. And so some of the children who are still in that identity formation stage, mm-hmm. for example, there's this one client I know, um, under 18 years old, demanding the tr- transition surgery 
at this early age when they don't even know who they are, right? So Mm -hmm. thinking that I'm going to only be happy when I switch. Right. And the parents are the guardians and they're struggling about this. Like they see their unhappy child, but they know that the identity formation is still occurring Mm -hmm. and it might not be the right time to decide that, right? Um, because it's because that child, that youngster has equated being a male or a female means that's my true self. That means today he or she does not see the innate value and worth that they already possess. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Most people I know who are trans um, had a solid idea Mm-hmm. early on in their in their life or it, at least when they reach the conclusion that i my body does not reflect the gender i feel that i am mm. there was no mistaking about it and i've never heard a person say i was wrong about that and there's also the you know the issue of the longer you are have hormones coursing through your body that are you don't feel are are appropriate for the gender that you feel you are the tougher it is for you to transition later so given those things Mm -hmm. um is it fair to say to a, a a child you don't know yet is that fair to say that because i would believe the the child you know and at the very least Uh, And I learned this talking to a previous guest Mm. named Fallon, who's a trans woman, and she said that at the very least, kids can be given hormone blockers, so it at least kind of delays puberty for them, so that if they make their decision later, they don't already have Mm. the thick vocal cords of a male, etc. So I know it's a really complicated thing and you also have the parents to consider as well but to me ultimately it's that it's that child's decision and i'm just glad i'm not the person that has to be in there negotiating all of this but i i feel like ultimately it's that it's that child's decision and they and their parents should have all the information that they can possibly have but I think too often we tell kids and adolescents, you're just going through a phase. And to mm. me, this is much more. You're right. I mean, we don't say that directly to them, right. obviously. We just tell them that, um, you know, the definition of happiness and redefining the word identity for them. Mm-hmm. Because when they're defining it for themselves like that, then even though they do the switch, right? They will still be unhappy. That's like think what I was gathering from this particular case, and I got I don't, you. So it wasn't mm-hmm. about whether or not they were going to switch to another gender, but it was about getting them to see who they are beyond their gender. Exactly. Is that what is that where you were saying? Exactly. Okay. Because this particular youngster just believes themselves as like a nobody, a nothing, and things that they're going to be a somebody or a something. I see. Just because of that. That it's going to fill all the emptiness mm-hmm. in them. And similarly, like I'm not a no I'm not a somebody until I have a thousand likes on my Facebook or Instagram. Well, that actually is based in fact. But. <laughs> so, so those kind of um uh 
situations and cases occur, and and it's it it really does motivate me to help. Well, first of all, I personally have to believe that in myself mm-hmm. that my accomplishments or my labels on the outside or my my face or my hair because lately I've been thinning, you know, my hair's thinning. So mm-hmm. I'm like kind of grappling with that, that that doesn't define the beauty inside mm-hmm. and the value inside. So if I'm not filled inside, I will try to use anything on the outside to try to fill it. it, it it's interesting because you are describing the uh, struggle of the addict which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. looking for something yes. on the outside to fill our, our insides. And when I look at the majority of the problems in our society, especially the ones related to capitalism and the, and the huge economic disparity between the 1% and, and the rest, um, I see such addiction to money and power mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the wreckage from the addicts who are addicted that you know the the billionaires that not that all billionaires are bad but right, right. so many of them are conscienceless mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they their wreckage is so much worse than the the addict who gets caught with uh, you know maybe 5 grams of coke and they get 15 years in prison right <laughs> and the the billionaire who is polluting destroying our lakes and rivers and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, mm-hmm. uh they're not even held accountable mm-hmm. maybe maybe their company declares bankruptcy but they're never held personally accountable for anything and but i see the same thinking between that person who i can have empathy for the billionaire i you know i don't wish emptiness on anybody but right. i wish as a society we would begin to Stop celebrating Mm -hmm. amassing huge amounts of wealth without any kind of ethical test being applied. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard because even some of the um, the uh, the less developed countries, when I meet with some citizens there, and how they look up to the U.S. as if this is like heaven on earth, Mm -hmm. and it is not because of the the breadth of the landscape here, but it's just the the average salary mm-hmm. and how much money um, to them, they idolize that. And they don't even realize <laughs> that the the richest and the richest may not be the happiest. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. I concur with everything you just said. Yeah. Dr. Park, thank you for for coming and uh, sharing all that. Thank you. It was a privilege. A lot of complex stuff that we uh, we talked about. It's one of the things I like about doing this podcast is whether I agree with somebody on something or not, we at least get to talk about it in a way that's that's civilized. And I know a lot of times you guys will email me and you'll take exception to something that's that somebody said or agree with something that somebody said and or thankful that that topic or opinion is 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 being brought to the surface because so often we just feel alone in what we're thinking or feeling or feel that society in general is just not dealing with something or they're dealing with it in the wrong way and uh, i love on this podcast being able to provide a 
a forum for people to exchange ideas or to, to disagree. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves, uh, I want another tattoo. And they write, I love the smell of a just opened cigarette pack. That is such a good one. I smoked cigarettes for, I don't know, about two years. This was years and years ago, decades ago. Thankfully, I was able to quit. But at one point, I was smoking Camel non-filters because, of course, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to I'm going to do it full, full on. And I used to love that when I would open that pack. And um, oh, such a great one! Thank you for that. And I love the smell of heroin cooking. Oh, watching it bubble, putting the cotton into it. Actually. I, I got to be careful. I don't want to be triggering any heroin addicts who are newly sober. This is from the love survey filled out by Snoring Dog, and they write, I love it when my dog turns back to me after I toss her a treat that she can't locate across the room after she, after she searches for it. Then, seeing me point with my arm extended, she resumes the search. This can happen several times till she finds it, and I love watching the little gears turning in her head. Oh, I love that. I love that. Gracie, unfortunately, does does not understand the arm pointing to where something is. Sometimes I'll have to fake like I threw it again to get her to go after it. Uh, she loves chasing a wadded up pair of socks, and she'll be so excited. And then just like a switch turning off, she'll stop. She'll just look at me like, why the fuck did you throw that? The other thing she does that makes me laugh is after about the second time fetching the sock, instead of coming back to me, she just makes a hard right and goes into the guest room. It just lays there, chewing on the sock. 
This is from the uh, Awfulsome Moments survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tastes Like Hot Shame. Oh, the, the taste of hot shame early in the morning, right after that first sip of coffee. Like many of your listeners, my childhood left a lot to be desired. My dad was an angry alcoholic who liked to remind me that he never wanted me. My mom was a narcissist who wanted an accessory, not a real child. I was not allowed to be sad. She would slap me across the face for crying. When I was a teenager, I discovered that binging could numb out the sadness that I was not allowed to express. In my late teens, I started taking culinary classes and had unlimited access to food. I put on 30 pounds in one semester. My mom became concerned because her favorite accessory was becoming unsightly. When she asked me why I had gained so much weight, I admitted that I was feeling suicidal, and the only thing that made me feel better was binging. Her response? Thank God. I thought that you were dumb enough to get yourself pregnant. At least there's no risk of that now. No one will want to touch that fat stomach. Your mom sounds like a great lady with a lot of wisdom. That is horrifying. If I saw that in a movie, I would say, no, no mom can be that mean. Wow. Sick woman. Sick woman. This is an email I got from a woman who wants to be referred to as 2020 mom. And uh, she writes, Paul, I listen in pain when I hear people uh, talk about their childhood abusive situations because I was abusive to my children. I was emotionally neglected as a child, not an excuse, and it left me unable to handle emotions in anyone, let alone myself. I was also in a violent and coercive controlling relationship and was gaslighted, beaten, and driven to the edge of suicide. During this time, I had two children and was terrified as I didn't know how to be a good parent at all. I went on to be a big shouter like my father and an emotional wreck like my mother. This damaged my children, and I kind of knew it was harming them, but I didn't know how to change myself. I used to think, I won't do that again, and feel such shame, but I would go on to shout again and beat myself up inside, over and over again. Years later, my daughter had panic attacks, and her sister has borderline personality disorder. I married again and had another daughter. I couldn't cope with the whole teenage thing. My anger was not under control at all, and I finally went to therapy. Eight years later, I am a different mom. I know how to soothe myself, and that's where the healing began. My anger disappeared. I no longer shout and I trust my own feelings rather than looking to others to make me feel better and blaming them when it goes wrong. I try not to shame myself for my past, but I do sometimes, especially when my children are struggling. I know it's because I didn't give them a stable base to work from emotionally. I try to concentrate on what I can do well today and not dwell on my past mistakes. I remember way back not knowing if I loved my children. So muddled and traumatized was my mind. Today I know they are the loves of my life and I have immense pride and deep love for them all. I want to say to anyone struggling in this way, please go to therapy as soon as you can because the healing can begin right away, not just for you but for everyone around you. Behind every story of crap parents is another story of crap parents and another and another and so on. Break the cycle for your descendants' sake. I wish every parent could hear that letter. Email. Why do I call it a letter? Because I'm a thousand years old. 
I wish everybody could hear that quill pen written correspondence carried by the Pony Express. It's such a great example of the fact that it's never too late to heal a relationship with somebody. Eh, maybe in some cases it is it is too late, but that's what a good parent does is is a parent cleans up their mistakes, apologizes and says, "What can I what can I do?" instead of just wishing I wasn't doing this. What what can I do to make sure that I'm working towards not doing this again and that she took that action and that that to me is the sincerest form of an apology is taking some kind of action to get better so thank you for that this is from the love survey filled out by green tea and they write playing a ball with my dog i I love how she runs so (laughs) enthusiastic the fuck is the matter with me i love how she runs so enthusiastically after the ball and then runs back to me she looks so proud of herself as she pants and drops the ball at my feet she reminds me that the simplest things can bring you the most joy I love listening to my music. It's been the one thing that's been consistent through the many chapters of my life. Whatever mood I'm in or what is happening, I find comfort and validation through music. It soothes my soul. I love that. And to me, something that really, really helps music soothe me is sitting in a place that's really comfortable, like a hammock or a, a big chair, and just feeling, just feeling... I don't know, kind of taken care of. Sometimes when I'm really stressed out, I'll imagine the universe holding me in the palm of its hand with love and and protection. Oh, I feel so vulnerable sharing that. (laughs) It feels, it feels, uh, oh, I just imagine people rolling their eyes at that, but fuck you if you are. This is from the pandemic survey filled out uh, by a variety of people. And the question is, have there been any moments during the quarantine that have made you laugh or smile? And uh, this person writes, on my birthday, my friend showed up outside my apartment with gifts and sung happy birthday from a safe distance to me. I had a dumb smile on my face for a long time after that. Wow, that sounds amazing. That would that would be really moving to see that. Uh, another person writes, you can really see the helpers, people that go out of their way to connect with people that need positive affirmations. Another person, my partner and I love watching the late shows while he rubs my feet at the end of the night. Their hilarious commentary on the absolute bonkers political situation we find ourselves in makes it all seem worthwhile. We also bought some silly animal masks that make us look like raccoons. Only our eyes show when we wear them. We put them on to play games or do photo shoots in our backyard. I cannot imagine what our neighbors think of us, but we have a wonderful time posing in various positions and playing raccoon versus raccoon cornhole. Oh my God, that sounds like the name of a porn video, Raccoon versus Raccoon Cornhole. For those of you that, that don't know, uh, Cornhole is that thing where you toss the, the bean bag into the box with the, the hole in it. Uh, 
that's funny. I never even knew that that was the name of the game uh, until maybe five years ago. I always thought the cornhole was just the the term for anal sex. This person writes, I love when coworkers, pets, and kids interrupt them when, when we have virtual meetings. Oh, that is a That is a great one. I love when my dingy neighbor said that she has a test to see if you have the virus and said all you have to do is hold your breath for 10 seconds. And if you can do that, it means you don't have the virus. Oh, that was so funny. She said, we did it and we don't have the virus. So go ahead, try it. Wow, if only. She really believes that to be accurate. I witnessed a mother pushing around a small child in a stroller which was completely encased in a plastic covering. I couldn't help but laugh at the thought of the child confused but complacent in this new reality. I love the sheer joy in nature, seeing tiny birds hopping about, seas of flowers and long grasses where they usually mow, beautiful round bottoms jogging past, and sexy bearded men. Thank you guys for those. This is from the Memorable Vacation Argument Survey, filled out by Kate. She writes, I don't have any super memorable arguments that I remember, but I think about the last vacation that I took with both of my biological parents. I was 13 and had accidentally found out about my parents' divorce by looking through my mother's texts a year prior. I kept this hidden from them, trying to convince myself it was a mistake. They'd been fighting for as long as I could remember, so I thought the impending divorce would make our family vacation hell that year. It actually turned out to be quite the opposite. I have no idea whether my parents were trying to pull it together to give us one last good memory of them or what was going on, but they both seemed carefree. My favorite part of the vacation was riding a roller coaster with my dad over and over again at two in the morning. I was so happy by the time I had gotten home, and although it initially caused me pain because it showed me what things could have been with our family, had our family life gone differently, I'm thankful to have those memories now. Wow, what a what a beautiful, bittersweet memory. Thank you for that. God, I love roller coasters. I don't know why I don't do them more often. I laugh from the moment it pulls out until the moment it comes back in. And laughing is hard for me a lot of times. This is from the same survey filled out by Diazabam, who writes, my ex-girlfriend's favorite rest restaurant closed down in our city, and for her birthday, I took us on a city break to the flagship restaurant in Dublin. We lived in U the UK at the time. We had far too much to drink and left a nightclub to go back to the hotel. Some guy started talking to me in the street, which set my girlfriend off. Before I knew it, we were screaming at each other in the dark, rainy Dublin streets. She kicked me and grabbed my bag off my shoulder, tearing the strap. She then ran off at the speed of Usain Bolt, heading the opposite direction from the hotel. Our passports and hotel key were held hostage in my bag. I gave chase, and in order to slow me down, she threw the bag down a dark alleyway. So at least I managed to retrieve the bag, key, passports, but not the girlfriend. 
There followed a bit more chasing, a lot more crying, and eventually got back to the hotel. When she woke up the next day, the next day, she had barely any rec- recollection of the fight and was in a massive shame spiral. I can't remember how long we stayed together after this failed holiday. I don't feel any ill will towards her at all. I hope she gets the help she needs to free herself from that kind of behavior. Wow. Wow. The the chucking the bag down the alleyway. It's a diversion. Oh, thank you for sharing that. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Wanky McWankface. And she writes, When I was at university, I was really depressed. I spent weeks in bed, not leaving my room. I lived in a house share with my friends, and they used to come in sometimes to check on me, chat, and try to persuade me to come downstairs. One time in the middle of the day, I must have been feeling better because I was masturbating. I was going for it with my vibrator, and just about the time to reach the big O, my housemate knocked briefly, then came into the room. I just had time to turn off the vibrator, but was sitting there with it still shoved up my vagina, naked on the bottom half, but covered in a blanket, a little sweaty and red-faced. She proceeded to talk to me for a bit, being very nice and asking how things were going. Then my other housemate walked past and started chatting. It was 20 minutes before they left and closed the door. 20 minutes of sitting with the vibrator inside me, praying it didn't accidentally turn on. It made me laugh for the first time in weeks, though. What a wanker. (laughs) Ah, Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Avoiding Homework. And they write, I love the smell of chalk. Chalk erasers being clapped together. Dust and powder. My cat's breath stinks, but I secretly love it. The moment my husband climbs into bed and pulls me into his warm body. The satisfaction of popping a really juicy pimple. And really windy days make me feel witchy and magical and bring me so much joy. Ah, thank you for those. Thank you for those. That's funny, I've never, I don't think I've ever really enjoyed a windy, a windy day. Maybe flying a kite. God, when was the last time I flew a kite? Oh, this morning. This is uh, from the pandemic survey. Uh, again, the the question, have there been any moments that made you laugh or smile during the pandemic? Uh, this person writes, I went for a bike ride for the first time in five years. It took a global pandemic to get me off my ass and into the sunshine and feel the wind in my face. Ah, oh, yeah, there's an example. Yeah, I do love the wind when uh, you're going fast. Another person writes, I love no traffic. It rocks. All the beautiful flowers in my neighborhood. My cats have been having to be on top of me at all times. I've been bringing them onto my porch, and it's so fun to see them explore new things. Smiling, deep, peaceful sitting in a cemetery in the sunshine, listening to the wind in the trees. Wow, that's an interesting one. I don't know if I could totally relax in a in a cemetery. 
But maybe there's something comfortable about being surrounded by people who are all slowly being forgotten. I enjoy watching my dog play in the backyard. She does this thing where she spins around 360 degrees, pivoting on her hindquarters. She will frequently throw her toy in the air and catch it while running around the yard. I cannot help but laugh out loud. Oh, I love that. I love that. I've shared this before, but when I put my inline skates on to take my dog Gracie for a skate, she gets beside herself and will go and find anything foot-related to celebrate, and she'll just start tossing it in the air. And it's like as soon as she gets it, she realizes, oh, this is really kind of pointless, and then she'll come back to me. But I just love the specific ways that dogs will show their excitement. I've discovered children's television, specifically morning shows, more specifically Bluey. This is one kid's cartoon that adults can relate to, and it quite literally has me belly laughing most mornings. What a great way to start my day with a hot cup of coffee and a belly laugh. That is a great one. My pup is going through her first heat cycle. We have a secure wooden fence around our yard, and there's a big golden lab next door. Uh, my dog was barking to have me come to her because she could see the, uh, Hank through the cracks of the fence and wanted me to l- let her at him. I looked down just as they both found a knot hole and kissed through the fence. It was so cute. Oh, oh. It's the best. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who refers to herself as already forgot the name I'm using. And uh, she writes, the day I adopted my dog almost four years ago, I'd just come out of my first eating disorder residential stay, and I'd had a cat for years but was determined it was time to get a dog. Luckily, the job I'd put on hold for medical leave still recognized I'd been there most of the previous year, so I still got the the end-of-the-year bonus. The weekend after getting said bonus, I ran to the local shelter. I was looking at a cage full of chihuahuas. I didn't really want a chihuahua, but I wanted a smaller dog for my apartment life. Some workers came by and started chatting me up. The older male worker left, and the younger female tried to talk me into one of the chihuahuas she'd fostered for a bit. I listened, but knew it wasn't my dog. Then the older male worker came back and just motioned to me, saying, I found your dog. He took me back and introduced me to a little scrawny, scruffy, dirty pup who was afraid to even approach me until he said, do you want to give him a treat? I held out a treat and the dog took it, then continued forward and curled up in my lap and went to sleep, at which point I said, oh my God, yes, you found my dog. Almost four years later, he's a little more crazy and livelier, but I love him more than anything in this world. And I always look back to that worker and think, correct, you found my dog for me. That is such an incredible moment when you find you find your dog at the at the shelter and you just know. You just know. This is from the pandemic survey. And these are answers to the question, have you been engaging in any unhealthy coping mechanisms during the quarantine? I am definitely drinking too much, about double what is normal for me. 
I've gone from full-time fitness training and clean eating to no fitness and ice cream therapy. I'm so disappointed in myself that I reverted, but I keep thinking, why the fuck not? I'm spending too much time on social media because I'm lonely. I'm drinking like a fish, and I feel just fine about it because we're all going to die at some point, possibly soon, and mama needs her hooch. (laughs) I smoke weed about 20 times a day, and then uh, LMAO. I'm eating too much. It makes me feel better. Oddly, I've also been sneaking outside to smoke, something I know would make me susceptible to the disease if I was exposed. That makes me feel guilty. I've been staying up late scrolling through Twitter, observing folks absolutely freak out and engage in fear-mongering. I am not trying to undermine the severity of this situation, but the people I follow on Twitter are making me feel like everyone is going to die. I spend all day on my cell phone, drowning out the feelings of dread, alternating between social medias. I feel disappointed in myself for using the time I so desperately crave normally in such a wasteful way. I could be painting or writing or practicing a skill. I know we aren't supposed to be productive all the time, but why is it that when I finally have the time, I still don't do the things I want to do? Boy, is that something people can relate to, including including me. Although I have been learning to bake. But still, yeah, there's that feeling like, oh, I blew it. I blew the day. I could have done so much, and I took eight naps and eight waffles. I should combine those and actually make two big waffles and nap on them. Nap right between them. Nice little whipped cream pillow. This person writes, I haven't been sleeping. I've been self-harming. Sending you some love. That's got to be really hard. Another person working out too much, which I'm aware of and trying to curb. Drinking too much, which I'm ambivalent about. I think my OCD and agoraphobic tendencies are actually useful in this situation, even though I still don't feel great about them. I've also been unintentionally starving myself. I feel hungry, but I cannot see the point in eating. The thought of nourishing myself actually makes me more sad. I'm drinking more than I should. I sometimes start at 3 p.m. I've had at least a few drinks every day since the lockdown started. It makes me angry with myself, but I also think, fuck it, this sucks. I'm drinking, and I'm using alcohol to alleviate the boredom that sinks in by about 3 p.m. every day after being clung to by my baby for eight hours straight. Yeah, I think about the the parents that are in lockdown with with kids. Who? Another person writes, I'm texting old girlfriends. Dumbest thing I could be doing right now. These are my dancing with Mr. Brownstone days. Uh, That's a reference to a Guns N' Roses song that's about uh, heroin. Women have always been more dangerous for me than drugs or alcohol. Every time I text an ex, I worry that I might OD on fantasy and the rejection will kill me. Thank you for that. Yeah, it, it's fantasy is is rarely given the it's due for being as powerful and 
distracting. You know, obviously some fantasy and, and imagination is great and improves our lives and the, the lives of others, but when it turns kind of toxic and harmful and intrusive, it's, uh, and it's so easy to engage in. It's so easy to engage in. This is a happy moment filled out by Jay, who is gender fluid, and they write, After 10 years of dealing with disordered eating, I finally went to my doctor and managed to get the words out. Being diagnosed with anorexia, it's kind of awful and fills me with panic that everything will change now, that I've let go of the grip it has on me to get treatment. But it feels so good, too, knowing that regardless of how long I have to wait for treatment and my struggles with change, I've taken the leap after all this time. I've spoken up to get better, even if I'm not full, fully comfortable with it. I don't feel like I'm winning against it ever, but this shows me that maybe I am. Yeah, that, that is awesome, and thanks for sharing that. There, there is something that brings a glimmer of hope when you start taking action to tackle a problem or an issue and at least feels like you're not standing still because that's one of the worst things about being stuck is the lack of feeling of movement, which for me just opens the door to just shame pouring out. And then finally, this is from the love survey, and this is filled out by... Actually, you know what? I'm going to read. There's a, a shame and secret survey that... Uh, I want to read. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Australian Princess. She uh, identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, she writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And I would say it absolutely does. She writes, I like to have rough sex, which I usually have with people other than my partner. One night, my fiancé and I were drunk and had also been arguing all week. He said he was doing it for me because he loved me, but it just hurt. There's consensual rough sex, then there's taking advantage of a person. Every time I kept telling him he was hurting me, he just kept saying, shut the fuck up. There was even a point where I was crying and he just kept going and saying, you're the one who likes it uh, like this, so we aren't stopping. In the end, he was the only one that ended up coming. I feel like it's kind of my fault it happened because I didn't like it rough. If I didn't like it rough, it wouldn't have happened. No, just because you enjoy consensual rough sex doesn't mean that you don't have the right to stop sex that you don't like. Any person has the right to stop sex at any time that they don't like. The even more fucked up thing about this is is me thinking about it is turning me on. Uh, she's also been physically and emotionally abused. My fiance constantly emotionally abuses me, and if I confront him about it and he doesn't like it, uh, he will then start to get physically abusive with me. One night in particular, he was out, and when he goes out, he tends to ignore all my texts and messages. And I asked him to be home at 11 so I could fall asleep with him because I was having a high anxiety day. He sent me a message at 10.50 saying he'd be, be, he'd be home a bit later. He then came home at 5 a.m., and I tried talking to him, but again, 
just kept tell- he just kept telling me to shut the fuck up. I started crying and slapped him in the ribs. He then started to kick me as hard as he could in the ribs and legs. When I tried to get into my car to leave, he also got into my car and was yelling at me to go inside. I was in pain and slapped him and told him to leave me alone. He then punched me in the mouth and cheek. I tried hitting him back, but he held my hand then started to choke me. I got out of the first one, but he got me again and I blacked out for a few seconds. His reasoning for all that was that he was defending himself. Wow, this is such a sick relationship. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Always. My psychologist has said we have a gaslight relationship, and it's the truth, and even though I know it's toxic for me, I just love him so much. I think there is something about him hurting me so much that I'm kind of addicted to the feeling uh, when we are together again after I have cried and hurt over him for the millionth time. Darkest thoughts. I'm scared that if I ever get raped, I would enjoy it because I love rough sex so much. Darkest secrets. I am constantly cheating on my fiance because our sex life isn't enough for me. He is happy to have sex once a week, whereas I could have sex at least three times a day. I constantly masturbate when I'm at home because I just love that feeling of coming. I also love getting guys who are in relationships so horny they then have sex with their girlfriends thinking of me. That power of knowing I can get them hard and they want to have sex with me but don't want to cheat in a physical sense on their partner is exhilarating. You know, I don't know if your therapist has mentioned it or not, but there, there are a lot of um, similarities in what you share uh, to, to sex addiction. And, uh, you know, as I say in the beginning of the show, I am not a therapist. But um, you might look into a support group um, for sex addiction because so many of the, the the things that you've described in here are really common in people that are sex addicts and, and love addicts. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. As I said, I love it rough. I love being tied down or held down when fucking and being told I'm a good little slut. I like knowing I can make a guy come so easily. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my parents what is going on with my and with me and my relationship with my fiance. What, if anything, do you wish for? A better relationship with my fiance, where he understands what I'm trying to tell him rather than just ignoring me and think I'm attacking him. Boy, I hope you pause. Although this this survey was from a while ago because I, I can't keep up with the shame and secret surveys. I can only read, you know about 10 a week and then it just gets too intense for me um but i i really hope you guys pause your relationship and deal with a lot of these things especially if you're thinking about bringing a kid into this world have you shared these things with others i've shared it with my psychologist who advises me this isn't the relationship i should be in i would even say that right now you shouldn't be in any relationship until you work through this stuff because 
it is, I hate to sound like an old fart, but putting the cart before the horse. And after everything he has told me and what I've read, I know it isn't the right relationship, but I keep expecting a change that probably won't happen. And that's part of the insanity of addiction. It's just thinking this time it's going to be different. How do you feel after writing these things down? Honestly lost. And I'm sorry you're feeling that way. And I'm sorry you got so much, so much on your plate mentally and emotionally. But sometimes being in a place of being lost can be the time that we let help in and open up to somebody. And it sounds like you're, you're opening up to your, your therapist. So maybe now is the time to, to, to try something different and upping the help that you're getting by checking out a support group or you know reading some literature on it and as again as i said i'm not i'm not trying to to diagnose you but it's it's worth looking into additional kinds of help and finally, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves useless philosopher. And they write, I love the quiet unity I have with my family. We're all on different wavelengths, but it's such an odd mix of personality and activities that make it funny and so sweet. My mother typically spends the evening doing her homework with her headphones on, her long nails clicking on the keyboard while my stepdad snores outstretched on the couch, the news droning in the back. They're such an odd pair. I've always thought of them as Speedy Gonzalez and Slowpoke Rodriguez, a deadly mix of ambition and contentedness to make a whole superhuman. My brother is always downstairs at this time playing his video games, and every now and then his raucous laugh make it, makes its way up through the floor with an occasional boof from his two dogs. I sit at the counter reading or doing some schoolwork of my own, adding my own counterpoint to my mother's nail clicking. A few times a night, I look up from my reading or computer, and it's like I've surfaced from underwater and can see the sky and revel in the calm. I can stay here with no thought of time or stress. It's usually in moments like this when I first realize that I haven't thought about my abuse or past for quite a while, and I can feel my healing catching up with me. I'm in no rush to leave, but I can always dive back into my reading, knowing that when I come back up, that serenity will be waiting for me. Wow. That was eloquent. Eloquent. With a big capital Q right in the middle of it. <clears throat> Thank you guys for your for your surveys. And um, if you're out there and you are feeling feeling alone, you are not. You are not. It's so cruel to ourselves to compare our insides to other people's outsides. And um, maybe today is the day if you if you haven't asked for, for help yet or just opened up to somebody who's safe. Maybe today or tomorrow will be the day that, that you do it. And uh, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.